0: We're looking this evening at Isaiah chapter 4, and I've headed this uh, particular message after the darkness light, which is the English version of a Reformation watchword, post-tenebras lux, the Latin post-tenebras lux, which in its turn was based on a verse in Job, but which quickly became the slogan of the Reformation. And... In a sense, that summarizes this chapter 4, but it also summarizes really the first five chapters. It's a cha- these are chapters of great darkness, as God takes issue with how things are in Judah at this time. And yet, there are two blazing areas of light within these chapters. One is in the beginning of chapter 2, and then the other is most of this chapter 4, but not quite all of it. Light in the darkness, and yet the darkness is there. We're coming back to the prophetic vision of the uh, prophet Isaiah in that phrase, in that day, and in that day. It's the frequent refrain of Isaiah, as well as other prophets. It's the day of the Lord. It's the future. It's uh, ultimately, the messianic day that we are living in, the day of Jesus Christ, but also um, some of the prophecies that have that particular phrase can mean right into the second coming of Christ and beyond. And it's not always easy to work out just where the prophecy is located, except to say it'll surely happen. And in that day, we see... It's going to be a day of darkness, and we are in a day of darkness, a day of judgment. We're reminded about that in verse 1. In that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own food and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. This is a repetition of what is there in chapter 3 concerning The Daughters of Zion, uh, concerning these um, ones who are at the present time so godless, uh, so fixed on particular goals and um, priorities uh, which have nothing to do with serving and worshipping God. And in the early part of chapter 3 we see there is a lack of leadership and that there, there is a lack of men to rule the people, of mature men that is. And that thought is here taken up in chapter 4 verse 1. There are so few men uh, that women have become desperate to have a husband. Um, because in ancient culture not to have children, not to have a line taking your name forward was a matter of reproach, and so we have here a sense of both the desperation of these women and yet also something of their uh, godless um, way of life that they there 's a loss of modesty in their desperation, uh, seven women taking hold of one man, one man, and offering to keep him to keep that man to look after him. Um, anything to avoid the disgrace of widowhood and the lack of children. We sense their insecurity, we sense their desperation, because it is a time of judgment that is being foreseen, a time of judgment in society. And yet also in that very uh, chapter, in the very next breath, again repeated, in that day we come to astonishing light, a day of astonishing grace, Uh, In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. Chapter three begins with a prophecy of the taking away from Jerusalem and Judah of the stock and the store, the supply of bread, the supply of water. Covenant judgments leading to bad harvests, leading to drought and so on. And then there's no food. But now we see the restoration of covenant blessings. The fruit of the earth is excellent and appealing. And it speaks about the branch of the Lord. And as I said, it's light shining in the darkness. And the fact that we have on either side of this very dark description, which lasts from chapter 2, verse 6, to chapter 4, verse 1, the fact that we have on either side of it Uh, either side of these lurid descriptions of glaring sins we have these accounts of seasons of surprising mercy and undeserved blessing reminds us that even in a day of darkness gospel light and gospel blessing can come and even in our day in our nation conscious I'm sure as so many of us are of the sins of our nation the increasing godlessness of our society and the sins which bring their own judgments which are at work in our society, we can yet say with biblical mandate that there could yet be astonishing seasons of blessing for our land under God's mercy and grace. And the chapter then goes on from verse 2 Uh, to the end of the chapter, to just enumerate the blessings that come in these seasons of mercy. Uh, I'm going to try and look at some of them, not necessarily quite in the order that's there, but more or less in the order. And let's just see what blessings will come to our nation, what blessings will come to us as individuals if we have not yet experienced them, if God were to visit us. I want to pick first of all on this fact that there will be escape from the world. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. It's a rather surprising word to find there because no one has spoken uh, or the prophet hasn't spoken up to this point of some sort of prison, of some sort of place of captivity, and yet he brings in the idea of escaping. What is it that is being escaped, and who is escaping? Uh, Look at what it says in the next verse. It shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. That is speaking of those who will escape the the judgments escape the condemnation that God will bring. They are those who remain, from which we get the word remnants. They're a minority, but they will escape the judgment that is here spoken of and is part of the darkness. Escape from the worlds. Maybe you don't think of that particularly as a blessing. But it is a tremendous blessing to escape from the dominion of sin, to escape from being part of this evil world because we have become children of light. Perhaps in your nightmares, we all have them occasionally, you've you known what it is to be trapped with a sense you can't get out. In fact, there are even today um, escape rooms. I've never been in one. I never want to go in one, but there are Places where you can go and try and get out. But this is a terrible captivity that is here being spoken of. Captive to a society, a community that is part of the world, that is in the grip of Satan. Captive to the prince of the power of the air, to Satan himself. Captive to the lusts and the desires of the flesh. And there's only one thing that we ought to do, in relation to that, and that is to escape from it, to get out of it fast. In Pilgrim's Progress, there is an account of Pilgrim escaping from the city of destruction. And Bunyan writes, I saw in my dream that the man began to run. Now he had not run far from his own door when his wife and children, perceiving his departure, began to cry out to him so that he might return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on, crying, life, life, eternal life. So he did not look behind him, but rather fled toward the middle of the plain. What are are we to do if we are, those who are in this situation of being uh, in the grip of Satan and the world, there's only one thing to do, it is to flee from the wrath to come. Not to sort of amble out of it. Not to say, yawn and say, well, it doesn't really matter. It's to, to run for your life. To run as though you were being chased by a wild beast. Notice that in this dream, of course, the man himself, it's only an allegory. The man himself is perhaps working in some trade. If it's Bunyan, he's working as a tinker. It's not a literal physical fleeing, but it is a metaphorical a spiritual fleeing. And even though his wife and his children are urging him to stay, to be part of this society, he puts his fingers in his ears and he runs for it. And here in Judah, when there is wickedness, violence, sexual immorality, uh, oppression, and when the system itself is utterly corrupt, there's only one thing to do, spiritually, it doesn't mean literally physically, but spiritually it is to run for your life, to run to Jesus Christ. I wonder if that's your relationship to the world, that you've, you've fled from the world, you've fled from the love of the world and the pride of life and the lusts of this, this world. Have you done that? Have you seen it's a matter not just of sort of ambling your way out and yawning, but really running for it, escaping? Notice in the epistles, we come across that phrase, flee fornication. Flee fornication. The end of chapter 3 is about those who are involved, no doubt, in immorality like that. Hence some of the references in this chapter. What are we to do with it? We're to flee. We're to run for our lives. However that is impacting us, we're to run for our lives. And what a day when, by God's grace, we have escaped from the dominion of sin, from the grip of the powers of evil. It's not that we've escaped from temptation. It's not that we've escaped from uh, falling into sin from time to time, but we've escaped from being those who are slaves to sin, who cannot but sin. Secondly, another blessing, the washing from filth and the purging from blood. Verse 4, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst, by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. What a blessing this is. The, the very word filth there is associated apparently with the word vomit. There are different kinds of filth, of course. There's uh, what some refer to as good clean dirt, meaning just the soil uh, with no other additives. And there's particularly disgusting filth, such as vomit. And here the prophet is talking about sin in the sight of God. It's like filthy, vomit-riddled rags. And the purging of blood, this is the blood of violence. This is blood shed through violence and murder and such like. And the daughters of Zion are those who can be purged from their filth and their sin. Have you been purged from your filth? And sin. Have you been washed and made clean by the blood of the Lamb? In the book of Proverbs, we read of a generation that refuses to acknowledge it needs that. We read of a, a people who, who just don't give credit to that. Proverbs 30, verse 12 There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. I think that describes our own generation very well. It's pure in its own eyes. It makes up its own rules. It has its own virtue signaling, as they say. And it has its own standards. And it sees these are the standards that matter. Some of the standards are better than others. But all of them fall far short of God's holy law. And so this is a generation that's pure in its own eyes. And it isn't washed from its filthiness. And it goes on to speak about this generation. Oh, how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. There's a generation whose teeth are like swords and whose fangs are like knives. Words can be very destructive. Have you been washed from your sin by the blood of Christ? Notice that the prophet says that this will take place in Jerusalem by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning and as I understand this what he's saying is this that there will be a return from the deportation into Babylon that there will be firstly there will be uh, uh, Babylonians coming in and ransacking the place destroying Jerusalem and then there will be a return and so there's a kind of regeneration of the people and he's here saying that in terms of God's historical providence, there's a kind of foreshadowing of what he will do in the hearts of the daughters of Zion. The providence becomes a kind of type of gospel blessing. And then thirdly, what is the third blessing? Well, the third blessing, and if you like, the central blessing, and it's there as such in the passage, is The one by whom these blessings come. Verse 2. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. You see to be washed from our filth. To be purged from our sins. Requires someone to take the punishment for our sins. To escape from the world requires someone who is prepared to be led away captive for us to be arrested in a garden and taken to a trial and condemned to death to be crucified. Christ himself is this branch of the Lord. It's a term that's often used in the prophets to speak of the coming Messiah, the word branch. In Jeremiah chapter 23, uh, we have one of a number of places where this idea is used. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. There seems to be nothing there. There seems to be absolutely no Messiah. There seems as though the remnant is tiny. And yet from the stump is going to shoot out a suckling, a branch. And where there was no apparent life, there will become life. And the the life will flourish. It will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth will shall be excellent and appealing. There are some who see in those two phrases, in verse 2, a reference to the divinity and the humanity of Christ. I don't know whether that's a right interpretation, but it's an interesting interpretation. Jesus is divine, the branch of the Lord. Jesus was the son of Mary, the fruit of the earth, shall be excellent and appealing. Well, that may be a right way to understand it. But this branch of the Lord is going to completely reverse the situation as we said the situation of famine and the lack of supply and the lack of blessing materially speaking as that's the only way of course old covenant Israel could see the blessings at that point materially speaking these uh, these curses will be uh, replaced by blessing escape from the world washing from your sin. A saviour to bring these things about. And then fourthly, holiness. What a blessing that is. Holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Beauty and glory for the people of God. It shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. What a, a reference that is to Psalm 87. As we read concerning the, uh, those who are born, whose name is written up as born in Zion. This one and that one were born in her. It's a reference to the new birth. It's a reference to being born from above. The Lord registering the peoples. This one was born there. In its Old Testament context, of course, it does refer to the genealogy of the Jewish tribes. But through New Testament eyes, we see here the teaching of Jesus. Except a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. But once we have been born from above, we are baptised by the Spirit into the body of Christ. We're made to drink in one spirit, and we become holy. And notice it's individual and particular, everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. Is holiness something that you are striving after? Is holiness something that each of us is vitally concerned about? After all, the one who indwells us is called the Holy Spirit, here is the, sh- the sure sign of regeneration, of being born again, bringing forth fruit in holiness. We read in Ephesians that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish, We do not read here that Christ gave himself for the church so that she could have ecstasies. So that she could have emotional experiences. So that she could have spiritual gifts even. All of these things might have a place at certain times and seasons. But we see here the fundamental reason why he gave himself for the church is that she should be holy. Beauty. And glory for his people. It was said of the robes of the high priest in Exodus chapter 28 that they were to be for beauty and glory. You shall make holy garments for air on your brother, God says to Moses, for glory and for beauty. And those holy garments are described later on in Exodus 28. The ephod of gold, blue, purple, scarlet thread. The, the fine woven linen and, and all the other parts of the high priest's gorgeous apparel. There was beauty, there was glory there. How do we define beauty and glory You can't really define these things, can you? Even in a worldly sense, trying to define beauty. What we can say is that this is the character of God shining out. The immortal, invisible, only wise God. The kind of glory and beauty that we get a glimpse of in the early part of Ezekiel. When there is that revelation of the throne chariot of the Lord. Uh, and there is this sense of of colour, this sense of blazing light, this sense of sparkling uh, colour and radiance, a raging fire and brightness all around. It's the same kind of glory and beauty that Jonathan Edwards describes in his conversion experience as he describes how he was in a wood uh, seeking the Lord so down about his sin and his failure to, to to take hold of God and then Christ met with him and he suddenly had a sense of the glory the surpassing glory of God it was as though he was enveloped in light he wasn't physically Enveloped in light. But it came into his soul. That's something of the beauty. And the glory of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth. And he communicates that beauty and glory to his people. And especially as we come to the final blessing. Especially when his people are gathered together. As his church. In verse 5 and 6. Then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and a shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a covering and there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat, for a place of refuge and for a shelter from storm and rain. I made reference to the fact that the people of God at this time would understand blessing most in terms of the material blessings of the old covenants. And we need to understand that for them, the way they would think of the presence of God is in terms of the tabernacle and the temple. They would think in terms of the pillar of clouds upon the tabernacle. They would think in terms of the Shekinah glory, as it was called, that rested there above the tabernacle. They think in terms of the pillar of fire leading the people of God in the wilderness at night, becoming a pillar of cloud in the day. And when the, the pillar remained, they had to remain. And when it moved on, they had to move on in their journeying through the wilderness. Now that pillar, that glory rested particularly upon the tabernacle and upon the holy place within the tabernacle. But here we note that the Lord creates above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above all her assemblies a cloud of smoke and the shining of a flaming fire. Over all the glory there will be a covering. There's a sense in what was once a limited revelation of God's presence And blessing and security has now become extended over all Mount Zion and over all who gather there to worship God. What a privilege, what a blessing it is to belong to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is the family of God the Father. It's the flock of God the Son. It's the fellowship of God the Spirit. And it is an immense blessing. And we find in verse 5 a word used that's used quite rarely in Scripture. This particular word, create. Then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and so on. It's a major, radical new work. It's a new creation. It's the same in essence, as what happens when somebody individually becomes a Christian. They are a new creation. God has done something in their heart, something vertical from heaven has come into your heart. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. That's why you've said that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not because horizontally you've received that, but because vertically you've received the conviction of that. And when that happens, somebody is brought into the church, the living church. Has that happened to you? Is that blessing yours? And it says, For over all the glory there will be a covering. And apparently, the word covering there is a word in the literal Hebrew which is associated with the marriage chamber. It's the thought of covering over a marriage chamber. It's the thought of intimate fellowship. Are you in fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Do you know God? And there's this sense of security. The Lord creates this security. Now we know, let's be realists, we know that in parts of northern Africa, IS, violent men, uh, breaking into churches, uh, heaving men and women off and uh, destroying churches and causing tremendous violence and bloodshed and, and heartache. But Jesus Christ, you see, looks after every one of his own children. Whatever happens to us in our bodies, nothing can pluck us from his hand. And though indeed individual churches might be wiped out, individual churches might be overrun by terrorists or just completely obliterated through years, decades of oppression, yet we know that Jesus says, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, that God's church will always be here in the world, that there will always be a witness to Jesus Christ and that there will be seasons of mercy when God will be saying of this one and that one that she's written in my register. And no one of his people, no one of his soldiers, as it said, will be left lying on the battleground forgotten about. Yes, we d- dwell today in deep spiritual darkness, but do not think for a moment that God cannot bring forth great light out of the darkness. And what about you? Is your heart darkness? Or has it become light in the Lord? Have you looked to Christ to bring light into your life?